Hello, I'm Jay Puffer, director of the Institute for Creative Arts. In this final episode of the ICA podcast, as with many of the conversations that have preceded it, we deal with a complex and charged subject. This time, the issue of hair, especially as it relates to Black women. Our intention with this podcast series has been to create a discursive platform for each artist's work. But the ICA remains conscious that the question of narratorship by a white speaker in these instances is particularly pronounced. And we wish to acknowledge the sensitive space within which these discussions sit. Thank you, and we trust you enjoy the episode. Understanding, yeah, it's, it's understanding, critiquing what it means really to be a Black woman and being a Black woman and all the ways in which we exist and don't exist or don't appear to exist, all the triumphs, all the not-so-triumphant moments. I think that's, that's, that's the core of, of my question. From the Institute for Creative Arts at the University of Cape Town, this is the ICA podcast, where we interview South African artists and curators who perform or curate live interdisciplinary works. I'm Catherine Bull, and you're listening to Episode 8. Hi, Catherine. Yes, I started with the difficult questions. <laughs> Who are you deep inside? Um, no, Nkule Mabaso, curator of the Michaelis Galleries at the University of Cape Town. I'm walking with Nkule Mabaso from her office on the university's arts campus through the city centre and towards a site near Cape Town Central train station about two kilometres away. And we're headed there to discuss her work called The Black Threat, that was performed in a number of festivals between 2012 and 2013, including Cape Town's Infecting the City Public Arts Festival. Mabasso's background is in visual art. She did her undergraduate degree in fine art at the University of Cape Town. And as a sculptor, painter and installation-based artist, her works have been exhibited widely, both locally and internationally. In 2014, when she began her master's in curating in Switzerland, at the Zurich University of the Arts. This marked a transition from her solo studio-based practice to her practice as curator. I think my method of working has always changed and moved because obviously my background was in painting, so I painted through my trick, entered Michaela's to do painting, started painting, but all along the line, I think I was losing a lot of patience couldn't wait for the paint to dry, just <laughs> just losing patience. And um, then I had to kind of find other ways of channeling the ideas and trying to do push myself and to say I, I want to work in other ways that are, are more open, more generative, that are collaborative, a wider community of sharing as opposed to sitting somewhere trying to hog an idea and saying, you know, this is this is my idea, this is my practice, this is how I do things, but to have this kind of ability to, to let it go and share it and see what happens to it. Working with and creating a platform for other artists provided an answer to this collaborative approach to art making beyond the studio that Mabaso was seeking. 
In 2015, she took up her current position as curator of the Michaelis Galleries, where she curates and coordinates exhibitions, talks and symposiums. And since then, her curatorial practice, both the work she does at Michaelis and independently, has opened up a huge array of projects. And although the focus of this episode is on the depth of a particular work rather than the breadth of Mabaso's practice, a sense of the scope of her vision is critical to understanding the lens through which she creates and curates work. In 2016, she initiated a solo exhibition of new work by Mahabo Helen Sabidi at the Michaelis Galleries, bringing the paintings and prints of the seminal South African artist into the heart of the academic world that has often overlooked Sabidi's contribution. And in 2018, she co-curated Tell Freedom, a group show of 15 young South African artists whose works reflect critically on the past, present and future of the country. Mabaso's major international projects include the Venice Biennale. My name is Mkule Mabaso. And I am Nomosa Makubo, and we are the curators of the South African Pavilion exhibition titled The Strong We Become at the 58th International Venice Biennale 2019. And also in 2019, she curated a group show of black women artists working outside of the traditional mediums of painting and sculpture that presented an inquiry into the contribution their work makes to the study of abstraction a show that was, in part, a response to an earlier exhibition on abstraction, hosted by the South African National Gallery, from which black women artists were absent. And there are a host of interdisciplinary events that Mabaso has spearheaded or facilitated, like the Township Art Festival run by the Newcastle Creative Network, which is an organisation Mabaso founded in 2012. The festival took place over three years in Madadeni, a township on the outskirts of Newcastle in northern KwaZulu-Natal, where Mabaso grew up. Newcastle has about 300,000, 400,000 people. The town is about 60,000 people. And the rest of the people are in the Newcastle townships. Also, Newcastle townships are about 50 kilometers out of the town. So expecting people to come to a festival that is in the town would only bring in a, a very se select few. For me, it was more about trying to reach people, obviously, who would not have had art in school, would not have had some kind of creative access, and, and to start to think creatively about how does one participate if you're just at home? What, what skills do you already have if you don't know that you have? So a big part of, of the festival in Newcastle wasn't just the public space, it was actually the private space, because we were using people's homes as the galleries. So we had home where we were screening films, some homes were workshops, some homes were exhibition homes, and people were inviting us every year until we had a whole street. Like, this year you need to come and put some things up at my house, we can put things up in my yard that become, you know, so we had yards where we had sculptures, some yards for performances, and we still had the whole street closed off with the tent for, 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 for larger performances. But it was really this, this concept of, of, of people opening up their homes and letting people in and, and the artists would also be there so they're able to engage with whoever comes there to talk about the work. So we also had quite a few school tours so our teachers would bring their students. Nkule Mabaso's practice is diverse and wide-ranging, but unlike prior episodes, 
Today, we drill down into a single iconic performance and the installations from which it emerged that articulate an enduring theme in Mabaso's practice and in the history of the country, the politics of hair and beauty. And hair in South Africa is a political issue. It is an identity issue. What you are and are um, not allowed we're told to do. our afros are too big, our braids shouldn't be uh, bigger than one centimetre in diameter. Learners have been protesting, calling for a change in the school's policy and what they want is Those of young ladies at Pretoria Girls High School raising the problematic requests that young girls are expected to fulfil when it comes to how they style their hair. We'll be hearing from artists and academics who have experienced, curated and performed in Mabasel's work. I was excited to be sharing this idea of hair and how hair has so much power or how we give hair so much power to determine beauty. What seemed to be so innocuous, you know, hair extensions that you pass by daily or in shop windows became as something enveloping, obsessive. And I think that the way it's done is uh, deceptively benign, and that's the power. I think Maninzi Kwashure, personifying the persona created by Mabaso, uh, began to uh, make us think in deeper ways about uh, things that we fetishize. But we begin where Mabaso's own interest in hair begins. I had a very good girlfriend maybe I was like 15 or 16, and she would braid my hair during lunchtime, you know. So I was changing my hairstyle every week because obviously she was doing it for free. And then from there, I started braiding my own hair and consistently just changing my hairstyle. And then I I entered into around grade 10. There was this whole drama in the school because what I felt was, you know, kind of different treatment that when the white girls coloured their hair, so they'd come in one day, the hair is blonde, the next week, hair is red, week three, the hair is black, and nobody says anything. I'm like, I'm going to colour my hair. So I coloured my hair ginger. My parents were called in, I suspended, I set up for expulsion, I'd go home, my parents said, you're going back to school. So I was between a rock and a hard place. It was just really this, at the bottom of it was, I felt, I said, I mean, this is not fair. I mean, when they realized they were failing to expel me because my parents didn't accept it and I was there, you know, they just put me in detention. <laughs> I didn't even know that was a thing. <laughs> so they put me in detention. So for like two years, I was every Friday sitting in detention, which was fine for me because I got to do my homework. And by the time the weekend started, all my homework was done. But I, those kinds of microaggressions and from my side, challenges went on from like grade 10, grade 11, so, yeah, covering that period of two years. Until they did apply the school rules fairly and across the board, which was what was supposed to happen from the start. And the worst thing also that had happened, like much earlier in life, like my brother, when he started school, so my, my brother and sister had dreadlocks since they were about two years old. My father had dreadlocks in their hair. And by the time he started school, his hair was like shoulder length in dreadlocks. And they refused to accept him to enter school so he had to cut his hair. That was upsetting as well, because it was just like, why is this a requirement? What does this has to do with his development and functioning? So this whole thing stuck to me, like how hair then became this very small symbol for this underlying injustice and unfair treatment. 
Mabaso's lived experience has not only informed her work, at times it has been the work itself. In 2012, she created an interactive installation called Hair is Where the Story Is that was exhibited in South Africa and later in Denmark, Norway and Switzerland. And the installation presented a series of abstract images on paper formed with strands of her own hair. Each image was accompanied by a set of headphones through which you could listen to intimate conversations that Mabaso had recorded with friends and relatives, discussing formative experiences of how they'd come to relate to their hair. She recalled one of these conversations as we walked. And so this particular conversation was because her father was black and her mum was coloured. But her mother was so fixated around the hair of, of her daughter. So it was, there were two children and uh, both girls that from a very young age, remembers like being two or three, being taken to a hair salon and their hair being straightened out. You know, you know that when you're getting in the car, that's probably where you're going to end up in this chair and your hair being pulled off your skull. But then once she starts school, then she sees other girls, you know, with straight hair, long hair, and then she starts to, to want it for herself. Like, ah, okay, so somehow it means something. So their mom was began to reverse curl their hair so that the curls wouldn't come back. So it was also, again, another very hectic process and hot combing. And so when she started varsity, she then decided she's no longer going to relax her hair. And that caused so much kind of emotional friction between her and her mother. Her plan was she was going to cut her hair. But she actually had so much fear and anxiety about what that would do to her mother. She felt that she'd be cutting a piece of the relationship with her mother. So it was this whole tortured conversation that we were having. And so that, yeah, that played. Problematic requests that young girls are expected to fulfill when it comes to how they style their hair. go back a bit then. So tell me the kind of household you grew up in. I grew up in a family of nine, so seven children and two parents. And I'm the oldest of the seven, so it's five sisters and one brother. <laughs> it's where all the leadership comes from. <laughs> yeah, it was not a bad child, it was good. But it was definitely busy, but also it was within a, a structure of busyness. So it wasn't, nothing ever really got out of hand. And you always knew what you were supposed to be doing. And then you knew the consequences of not doing what you were supposed to be doing. <laughs> I remember one year, it was probably like 96, when we had moved from Motu to Newcastle. And started at the new school in, in Newcastle. And... It was always making something. Then I'd go home and extend this process of making with my sisters and you know, for hours and hours and even over the, the school holidays. By the time I, I was eight, I was already sort of doing art classes after school and very artistically engaged. 
So you know how you make these fold out trees with the circular shapes? It's two pieces that you fold into each other to make this four-sided, very rudimentary shape of, of a Christmas tree. In the classroom, we had made one that was from an A4 size paper. But of course, when we were home, we were like, scale up, you know? So then we just went big and very decorative, colored up all the, the paper, used glue, made all this kind of decorations for the trees. And of course, when my mother came back, this house was in a mess, glue, scissor, paper everywhere. And I remember my father was like, no, but you know, look at the tree. Now we don't have to buy a tree. This tree is so beautiful. And we, when we actually put it up, it was our tree. <laughs> Your first exhibition. Yes, it was my first major project. I mean, I had to provide the vision and the structure and they had to work. <laughs> I mean, Newcastle is a very small town. And it was felt like it was people raising kids and old people and there's nothing to do in the social sense you know you have this realization that in your teenagers like i need to get out of here mabaso left newcastle after finishing high school in 2007 to study in cape town which is on more or less the opposite side of the country 1500 kilometers southwest of newcastle and it was in the third year of her fine art degree that she first began thinking about hair as a rich material to experiment with. In the lead up to her final graduate exhibition in 2011, Mabaso created an installation that was a seed for what would later become her performance, The Black Threat. It was, it was my dreadlocked Rapunzel, but those tentacles weren't looking for a prince. They were, yeah, looking for freedom, looking for justice, and felt like I was taking over something. So in this particular case, I was taking over the building, I was taking over this, the, a part of the institution. This work, inspired by the image of a dreadlocked heroine, took the form of a huge three-story high installation called The Dread, that was later exhibited on a slightly smaller scale in Norway and Denmark. But if you'd walked onto UCT's arts campus at the time of the initial exhibition in 2011, it's the very first thing you would have seen. A thick mass of artificial hair extensions that seemed to explode out the top window of the campus's hidden building. If you saw the installation from the inside, it blocked out all the light. So all you saw was this matrix of black lines that were crisscrossing across the window. So you could only see the installation from the outside. I know when I was making the work, it, it, I did think if there, if there was a black Rapunzel and if her hair grew long, it would probably have to be in dreadlocks and what kind of dreadlocks would last. And, and then I came up with this. I wanted them to feel alive. I think for me that was very important. I recall describing to somebody that I wanted whoever encountered the first installation to feel that the, the dreadlocks had actually crawled to the position that you encountered them in that they were moving. And it was also the opposite to the idea of dreadlocks being sort of an accumulation of dead hair. It's not just clinging on to what is alive at the root. I had wanted it to feel very electric and very mobile and, and sort of shape-shifting and form-shifting. A year later, these ideas shifted shape and form once more from installation to a performative intervention called The Black Threat, the work whose outdoor site near the Cape Town train station we were busy making our way towards. Because it was cheap, so I pretty much bought out all the hair from the pips 
and this was one of them. <laughs> Pep is a low-cost retail outlet with thousands of stores around the country, including one in the Golden Acre shopping mall, which we passed through en route to the train station. Remind me again how many meters of hair you had? Close to six meters. Like some of the hair were really extra long and then some other hairs were like three meters, but it took me a whole year to braid the whole wig because I had I bought a, a wig with Afro hair and then braided on that Afro hair. I don't even remember how many packets I used. Um, and then, yeah, they were not, this is 30 bucks. This is way too expensive. The, the artwork would never have worked. <laughs> when Mabaso first began buying entire pep stores worth of hair extensions, she didn't yet know to what end, except that unlike her installation tumbling out of the third story window, this time, she had the vision of a wearable wig with long braids that would form the centerpiece of a performance. Cool. So, I know where we need to go. We need to go there and down the escalators. And then we're going to go through a passage. If you take the escalators down to the lowest level of the Golden Acre Mall, you reach a pedestrian walkway that runs beneath Adderley and Strand streets and connects the city's central business district to the Cape Town train station. And a few steps to your right-hand side after exiting this underground walkway is where the Black Threat was performed in 2013. A lot of hair salons um, down there in that, in, that, in that area. So you'll see that also as, as we go down, then you'll see the, the hair salons. So we figured, I mean, there's going to be an audience that's curious about this long hair and what's going on and what are you trying to say? These hair salons dotted in and around the lower level of the Golden Acre Mall, mostly specialise in braids, weaves and wigs. So this is the visual reference point that audiences would have had as they approached the black threat. But it's also worth pausing to note the work's symbolic reference point, the meaning and power with which hair is imbued in South Africa, both historically and currently. And every time one is oppressed using their hair, it's no different to how our parents felt when the apartheid regime used pencils and pens to determine whether this one is black, coloured or um, white. But now, the manner in which the oppression is done is, is more of a casual way. That's Apiwe Mpahleni, one of the three performers in The Black Threat, who we'll hear more from in a moment. And she's referring to the infamous pencil test that was used under apartheid to determine a person's racial classification, depending on how easily the pencil moved through the hair. Recent events that happened in Pretoria Girls High, where a matric student was suspended because her hair was in the afro. She was, she was, she was not allowed to write her pillow. Hair has never stopped being a site of contestation in South Africa but it's received increased media attention in the last few years, sparked by the number of public and private high schools throughout the country called out for their discriminatory and racist hair policies on both sides of the natural versus artificial hair debates. Well, yet another Gauteng high school is embroiled in a natural hair scandal. A grade nine pupil from Hyde Park High School faces detention because of standards of professionalism and neatness and cleanliness to whiteness, right? So unless your hair is, is not is straight, then you, you you are other, you are exotic. And in South Africa, in Africa, the Afro is exotic. And what the principal explained to me is he is for the kids coming to school with the Afro 
clothes with their natural hair. He's against braids and hair extensions. His main reason is he's hoping to change the perception that the children have of what is beautiful. You know, there's a song that says, I am not my hair, I'm more than that. I personally think, yes, it is a huge part of who we are, it's a part of culture, but it's also an accessory. Do you know what I'm saying? If I want to wear it long today... And while Nkule Mabaswa's work, The Black Threat, predates these particular incidents, the work arose in the same politically charged context, a country in which black women's hair in particular is rarely permitted to be just hair, but is constantly held up used or misused as a symbol of self-worth, of violations of dignity, of assimilation or resistance to whiteness and Western standards of beauty. Oh see, there is a little pool that's now dank, dirty. I think this is exactly where it was. Yeah, and so it couldn't have gone too far, so I think this was the whole situation of it. The site where the Black Threat was performed at the Infecting the City Festival is a small enclosed area with a few trees, a rock feature made from the kind of sandy-coloured fake rocks you'd expect to find in a zoo or aquarium, and two small rock pools, which are shallow puddles today, but were flowing and waist-deep in 2013. Here's co-choreographer and performer Piwe Mpahleni again. So at that time when they told me that, oh, we're doing a piece about hair, I related to that because I had just cut my dreadlocks. And so many people were asking me, why did you cut your dreadlocks? They look so nice and new. So I had experienced people asking me about my hair and feeling entitled to how, why did I change my hairstyle? So it was the perfect time for me to be part of that project. And so many um, memories that people carry as individuals. For example, personally, when I was in primary school, I used to have natural hair. Because my mother couldn't afford um, getting us to a saloon and treating our hair daily. So having natural hair was the cheapest way to, to, to carry my hair. So it symbolized so many things. It's your struggles. It says that you could afford this and that back then. It meant that I had to depend on the feeding scheme. It meant that I couldn't afford um, going to the beach every month and or going to spare every month. And so... <laughs> When people make comments about hair, it triggers so many things. The Black Threat began with Apiwe Mpahleni gathering audience members and passers-by from the nearby train station, as if collecting customers for an impromptu roadside hair salon, and leading them to the site of the rocky enclosure. We'd been standing here on the 6th of March, 2013, what would we have seen? What would you have seen? Coming out of the doorway of Grand Central, you have this reinforced uh, fence, so it looks like a whole caged area. So there's already this delineation between the performers and the audience, and the audience is, is, is on the outside. Peering through this fence, waiting for the zoo-like setting to come to life, the audience's attention was drawn to the long braids that stretched all the way from the very edge of the enclosure, up the rock face and into the pool at the top. Their unmanageable length echoed Mabasso's earlier installation of the Black Rapunzel. But here, viewers weren't left to imagine a mythical character behind the hair. These braids were attached to the figure at the centre of the work. Mabasso's collaborator, Maninzi Kwachube, who emerged from the rock pool, 
moving slowly at first, replatting her loose-hanging braids. She had the very long, five meters, six meter long wig I had made. The other two performers are kind of envious of this long mane, and she is, you know, sometimes stroking the hair, sometimes fighting with the hair, and, you know, the hair is getting caught up. The scene is tender, bizarre, humorous, and even disturbing all at once. There's the sheer absurdity of the wig and Manenzi's attempts to move under the weight of it set against the intimacy of her grooming ritual and half-naked body. Which was made all the more marked by the audience packed tightly around the fence, watching her every move like an animal at the watering hole. And you would have seen the other two performers were wearing bits of leopard print and I think just the underwear. So they really started off with them just sitting and then, you know, these complexes develop and then they start to have these interactions between themselves. Walking up and down and climbing up on the rocks and kind of also engaging each other sort of bodily and lots of grunting, lots of uh, pushing and pulling. Here is director of the Institute for Creative Arts, Professor Jay Pather, who curated the Infecting the City Public Arts Festival in 2013. It was incredibly powerful uh, because it was so unexpectedly so. It was one of the few performance installations that we had. So in the sense that even though it ended or it began and ended, there was a sense that you could watch it forever these incredibly brave women moved through this this space like it was some kind of habitat but at the same time invoking the absurdity of these these extensions Manenzi's two co-performers Apio Mpahleni and Zizipo Tsamba step into the lower rock pool and Apio begins pulling at Zizipo's hair which, in contrast to the prized braids at the centre of the work, is short and natural. Um, the pulling of the hair, that we all know is female. When you go to a saloon, you get pulled like crazy because they're trying to straighten it. And it's not its natural form. And you can't comment. So for that hour or two, when you're sitting in that chair in the saloon, you lose um, um, the sense of ownership of your hair. So whoever is doing your hair becomes entitled to doing whatever. They pull you in whatever direction. They, they, if they feel like you've got a particular attitude or you carry a negative attitude, they'll punish you. <laughs> so when you come into your salon, you, you, you've got to carry a smile throughout. These forced strategic smiles stay glued for a bit longer until the two women become distracted by Maninzi's actions playing out above them, which grow increasingly frenzied and obsessive from attending to and showing off her braids, to being enclothed and then ensnared by them. Okay, wonderful. Um, my name is Samuel Ravengai. I am based at Wits University in the Department of Theatre and Performance, and I am the head of department there. Um, I phoned academic Samuel Ravengai to ask about an earlier iteration of the black threat that he witnessed in Zimbabwe. Actually, in the venues that we, that we were in, some of the hair was used as part of the, the door that every member of the audience that was getting into the venue would have to slide past in order to get into the venue. And Raven Guy recalled feeling so caught up in Maninzi's compulsion and struggle that he was almost moved to intervene. Uh, what stuck with me was the 
preoccupation with her entanglement in this load of hair that she was carrying. And I think the process of trying to get herself out of that was really quite, uh, uh, quite uh, unsettling. And I kind of felt the urge to go there and help her out of this difficult situation that she was in uh, until I remembered it was a performance, uh, but that was the edge. And I would imagine many people felt the same. Why can't we help this human being? And if this was Nkule um, Mabasa's objective, she was successful without having to articulate a single word. Similarly, there was no dialogue at the Infecting the City performance. But what you could hear clearly that day with the murmurings, laughter, and expressions of anger from the audience, as a and Zipo, still positioned below Malinzi, grabbed hold of her braids and began to pull. We always have this idea that people are bragging when they have beautiful hair. So we pull hair, we pull hair, and then she's begging, like, please don't pull me, don't pull me. It's a live performance, you, you get feedback right here and there. As you move, they comment. As you move, you can hear people talking. Oh, that one looks more beautiful. That one is... Oh, you see, pull her down, pull her down. Why is she bragging? <laughs> so there were so many comments. Um, she's not even beautiful. It's just that week that is making her look beautiful than the other girls. <laughs> so you have such... And you also have this mo- you have an opportunity for adjustment. It's not at the end of the finished painting when you're like, ta-da, at this particular moment, you can stretch the performance, you can cut the performance short, you can read your audience, and that also informs a next iteration or another pathway or or, or informs a different kind of idea. You know, let's be responsive in this in this way. I like to have control over things, but precisely in performance is where you have to also be ready to... To, to let go of that control and allow the thing to be what it, it is. In the final moments of the performance, Maninzi teeters on the edge of the top rock pool, clutching at her braids with one hand and trying to steady herself with the other, while a Piwe and Zippo keep tugging. But then, like a crazed dream sequence suddenly over, they let go, and the performance ends as the women turn away from the audience, take off their tops, and submerge themselves in the water. Um, that part, lowering our bodies to the water, to me personally, it represented the idea of, like you allow yourself to suffocate in this mess of people telling you how you're supposed to dress your hair, while you can actually be just yourself. So you find yourself suffocating and drowning in people's ideas of what beautiful hair is, or what beautiful hair is supposed to be. Even now that we're chatting, if you go online and Google um, professional hair, you'll get straightened hair as professional hair and you'll get afforded as unprofessional hair. It's still out there. It's an ongoing struggle. The incredible thing about it, I think in South Africa anyway, it was one of the first performative works that dealt with hair and extensions and the, the constant need to alter appearance and how one appears in the world naturally and the the obsession with that. I think investing this outside fountain space, this very brash kind of fountain spewing water, the outsider 
uh, a shopping centre, investing that kind of space with this level of profundity was, was a masterstroke. We live in such a Western-centric society and, and then you open magazines, um, you don't see, or you, I don't, I'm sure you do now, you do see lots of women with varied skin tones, with varied textures of hair, natural hair is now a whole phenomenon, so you see all textures of hair and colours and that's wonderful. But just two, three, four years ago this was not the case, you still had very um, singular body structure, very particular features and very particular hair texture that was, you know, the representation of a standardized kind of beauty. So even if you were black, you still had to have long straight hair. Um, and that means Naomi Campbell wearing wigs until she has alopecia and all kinds of crazy, un natural and unsustainable things that it's actually to the detriment of your health working so hard to conform within these singular notions of beauty that actually are not accommodating how do you become yourself also how do you become yourself without necessarily feeling like you are fighting right you just want to be yourself and so what does this self look like and so what are the what are the the options and coming up with no options. So I think it really was just tapping into those kinds of conversations. So we hope the movements that have happened since, that body positivity and um, natural hair movements and so on, become sustainable and, and stay and not just become a fad. Fads are not deconstructing if they're just a temporary reprieve. in South Africa is apologizing for the ad campaign that's outraged South Africans. It says, we are very sorry that images used in a Tresemme The advert sparked protests campaign. led by hard left opposition party, the Economic Freedom Fighters, who demanded that stores be shut for at least then, a week. What does it stay Some stores it's are not about the it's about dignity of a black person. It's not respected. It's very easy for them to use a black person's dignity, drag it on, on, on the floor, and use it as something that is not proper. Not long before this episode was due to be released, hair made headlines again in South Africa. This time, the cause was the local advert for the shampoo brand Tresemme, which displayed pictures of what they labelled dry and damaged hair, showing a black model, alongside what they termed normal hair, showing a white, blonde and straight-haired model. The immense public backlash and protests that followed the advert forced South Africa's biggest retail stores to remove Tresemme products from their shelves. I checked in with Nkule Mabaso over the phone to ask if among all the Tresemme-like scandals that have emerged in the years since the Black Threat was first performed, whether the work has taken on new significance for her. It's an interesting thought because it's, it's also sort of a pre-existing sort of ideological question that presents itself at particular moments all the way from around the 60s. And then it's just like these different moments of articulation of how do we speak about what is going on in this experience? And 
hair and the body has been the easiest relatable signifier where this marked difference becomes publicly played out, you know. I wasn't making a statement one way or the other, but was sort of engaging with the debate to say there are different sides to this debate and they all have limitations, right? Because at the end, it's different ideological interests in the public management of Black women's bodies, the public control of women's bodies in general. There should be space for me as the, 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 the person at whom all of these ideas are directed to um, have a space to make my decision about how do I want to represent myself, knowing all the, the, the discourses, right? So what is the choice that I make for myself, knowing that on Sunday or on Tuesday, I can make a different choice? And it doesn't necessarily speak to some kind of inferiority complex or neo-traditionalist ideas that a black woman only can be one way. The malleability and fluidity which hair has always represented for Mabaso, as both intellectual and artistic material, is also true of her practice more broadly, her refusal to settle on one thing or one way of doing. I mean, thinking about it even more and more, being having now been at, at home, this sort of just this this tactile interface of being able to share ideas and comments and having that energy of other people that I find productive. Finding people who share that kind of thinking, that kind of working, that um, that pushes the question to a different range of, of, of possibilities. That's what's very interesting to me because I'm like, how do we think together and arrive at something that neither of us on our own would necessarily have arrived at. So it's, it's, a, it's a, just a different kind of thinking process, which I find very engaging and very, very generative. I think I need to be able to do or relay between the, these two ways of working at different times. Like I'm not always going to want to be uh, working curatorially maybe, but I wanted to have that experience and that option. And I probably might want at some point to go back into the studio and do that work and knowing that I can shift between the two modes. When we spoke on the phone, Mabaso had recently seen one project come to fruition, the collection that she co-edited with Namusa Makubu of reflections and responses to the work of multidisciplinary artist Pamela Patsimo Sandstrom. And many more projects are underway, including two significant long-term collaborations with curator Nontobekon Tombela, the first being a book on the intellectual contribution and legacy of pioneering visual artist Gladys Nomfanakisom Gudlandlu, and the second, a retrospective exhibition scheduled for 2023, of renowned painter Esther Mathlangu, which will mark the first time Mathlangu's body of work, spanning seven decades, is shown in a singular context of this magnitude. Thinking through Mabasso's past performative works, her current writing and future projects, and the complex discourses around black women's identity, exclusion and representation that she continues to interrogate, I was interested to know, finally, what it is that drives her, that keeps her creating and curating. Um, I would say curiosity, being curious about different kinds of things and other people and their work about different ideas, different ways that things could be done, 
wanting to try things out and a kind of and yeah it's it's honestly just curiosity The ICA podcast is a production of the Institute for Creative Arts at the University of Cape Town. It is edited and produced by me, Catherine Bull. Music in this episode features Smooth Stone, Steadfast, Careless Morning and The Summit by Blue Dot Sessions. This episode marks the official end to season one of the ICA podcast, but we have a bonus episode in store which we think you'll love, so look out for that in the next few weeks. And until then, thanks as always for listening. <laughs>